Welcome to Miked Up with Chiral Podcast, where I'm your host, Brandis Field. And I'm your co-host, Tim Bertelsman. And you're tuning into the one and only evidence-based podcast made by chiropractors and for chiropractors. Here's how it works. We'll have a new clinical topic that we dive into each month, and you'll leave with practical skills that you can apply right away. Well, that's contingent on who's giving the advice, and you'll want to take mine. <laughs> Let's dive in. Welcome to the next episode of Miked Up with Cairo Up. Make sure to follow and share this episode. This is going to be a fun one. Where we're going to dive into the latest and greatest in chiropractic care. Welcome to the show. I'm Brandon. Joining me is the insightful Tim. He couldn't make it, but I will <laughs> fill in. Uh, in today's episode, we're going to dive into five of the most popular research articles from 2023. These are actually going to be adapted from Tim's blog. I think it was late last year, maybe December. It was on the 10 most popular research articles of 2023. But like we had talked about before, only half of what he says is actually true anyway. So I took his 10 and whittled it down to five. Uh, and these are the five factual ones. The other ones are a little fictitious. Um, sometimes he also rambles. We've had a couple complaints from our subscribers about how long-winded his explanations are, so I'll do my best to keep him in check for uh, for this podcast. But really what we want to do is expand upon his blog, get into the details in today's podcast, and really kind of transform the way you think about evaluation and treatment of many of the musculoskeletal diseases we're going to cover and see in practice. Hey Brandon, it is great to be back, especially when we get to talk about such fascinating things like my blog. Uh, and today we do have a treat. We're going to take five of those 10 top chiropractic research findings from 2023, things related to our primary tool, and that's spinal manipulation. And they were handpicked by the experts at ChiroUp. Actually, that's not true. They were handpicked by Brandon. But this podcast is really just a way for us to get together to discuss things that matter to you and to I and our profession. It makes things fun. And it's especially fun when Brandon's the one who's writing the script and I just have to show up and be naturally smarter. So now that our pleasantries are out of the way, uh, let's get back to why we're here. Um, so the thing that I'll hear most often from chiropractors, like how do you say up to date on this, uh, this sea of chiropractic research? I shouldn't say chiropractic research, all research, but a lot of that is heavy going towards our profession. And really our research team does it for us. So we have four chiros that are working that can help guide us, navigate us through all the scientific knowledge everything that's going out in the research, and then really kind of uh, paring that down to what is specific to the things that we see. I mean, like it or not, we don't see everything. I don't I don't do cardiovascular surgery. I treat musculoskeletal disease. Um, so there is a sea of research of what, 30 million references um, that, that are out there. Um, however, we utilize them to help give us that whittled down version to give you the cream of the crop. So in 2023, let's cover the top five spinal manipulative therapy research studies that really are going to affect your care and how you treat patients. But, but before we do that, a message from Tim. Yeah, that message is this podcast is kind of unique because Brandon and I are not podcast hosts. We're not uh, business owners. Well, we are chiropractic business owners and software, but more importantly, we're chiropractors. And we're committed to a shared vision with all of our other listeners and with all of the other chiropractors in the world. And that's to empower our clinical practices, to make our profession that undeniable best choice for patients and payers. And since the inception of ChiroUp, we've wanted to be more than a, a software. Now we have 3,000 subscribers in 16 countries. 
it really is a, a vibrant community, but it's like-minded doctors like you and I. Not that we agree on everything, especially in this room, but we are all dedicated to making our profession better, making our clinical outcomes better, and improving our professional standing in the world. And the heart of that mission has been for Chiroop to empower our practices with tools that blend into that practice to enhance patient care and to improve our professional journey. Now, over the past year, you might have thought that we've been fairly silent, but that silence was not inactivity. Behind the scenes, we expanded our coding team fivefold, and we've been building a second product. And that product, as some of you know, and now all of you will, is an EHR system that really embodies the utility that we deserve. Most of our subscribers voice dissatisfaction with their current EHR system. Really, they fall short, and I've learned that five different times. We've surveyed our profession. We, we know that the average EHR satisfaction score is in the six range out of 10. That's not acceptable. That's not a tool that we're going to achieve our audacious mission if we have something that's not supporting us. So fortunately, Cairo Up did ask and we listened to what you needed. And while we'll always continue to enhance our original product, in fact, we did just earlier this year with the Chief Complaint Survey, we're going to be releasing an upcoming EHR that will be a bigger game changer, something that's intuitive and efficient and tailored to elevate our practices. It's scheduled to release in the first half of 2024, uh, but that'll happen as soon as it meets what we consider a five-star product because that's the only way that we'll, we'll release it. As we gear up for this release of the EHR coming up within the next month or two, um, we're giving our original product a more distinct identity because now we do have a problem. We have a name for the product, Cairo Up, but we have two products. So we're naming the initial product Cairo Up Essentials. And the good news is, is that Essentials is really the core of your future EHR experience. Your familiarity with essentials and couple that with being able to tailor the patient protocols, all of your um, notes, all of the things that you describe for patients, all those customizations, all of that is going to seamlessly integrate into the EHR, which means you're going to have an unbelievably fast note uh, that integrates scheduling and billing and robust reporting tools. So embracing the essentials option now is not only a gateway to improve outcomes as we've done for the past several years, really eight years now, and improve patient satisfaction, but it's a stepping stone to launch the EHR and get the most out of that. If you can imagine a future where your clinical practice is not just about providing care, but doing so with unprecedented ease and efficiency, that's what we pledge to do for you. We want to revolutionize our practices. And we also want to say thanks because you're not just a Kairop subscriber. You're really a torchbearer of our movement. Together, we're moving our profession forward. We're reshaping healthcare. And your faith in Kairop Essentials and the anticipation for the upcoming Kairop EHR is what fuels our commitment and fuels everything we do. So thank you for being part of this journey. Your partnership is really the cornerstone of our success and what we're trying to accomplish here at Kairop. Well, I couldn't have said it better myself. I'm glad you had scripted that one out. No. <laughs> um, there's really not much more for me to say with that. Um, just like the rest of you, uh, I have to use an EHR every day. I have to take notes every day. Um, and this is something that we've developed not to schedule patients, um, not to um, send out bills, not to do reporting, but really how to make your life easier as a time management software uh, to make sure that you're doing the things that matter to you. And we're going to automate everything else to make it very simple to do. And that's a tough, it was a tough decision. 
Um, most people, in fact, I should say, we're a five-star business, right? Um, people rate us five out of five in, in every in every aspect. And EHRs are not just generally a five-star business. So taking a very fun, exciting uh, product that has a great reputation and going into a world where most people don't like that product. It, it was a tough decision for us, but we didn't do it because we thought it would be easy. We did it because you asked us and then asked us again and then again and then again. And then after seven years, we're like, okay, we'll do it. Uh, and we didn't do it begrudgingly. We're actually really excited about it. Uh, this is something that uh, truly excited about to keep the data uh, and really the money in the profession to stop this uh, this dissolution of our our profession with other products and services and to uh, to kind of serve our own. Now let's dive into the meat and potatoes of this um, this podcast and really the first blog that you had talked about was on that um, study in physical medicine rehabilitation uh, that was commissioned by the World Health Organization. And this is a big endorsement. This is a, a big piece of the puzzle because uh, they're recommending uh, as the World Health Organization spinal manipulation, but really it's not just spinal manipulation. And I think spinal manipulation is a big piece of that puzzle, um, but they really endorse education, exercise, and spinal manipulation. And this is key. Because whenever I go out and talk, I'll say one thing at the very beginning is, listen, when you look at the research, uh, if you're looking at MSK care and you're looking for non-surgical, non-pharmacological care, spinal manipulation is at the top. It's, it's, I mean, it is at the party. However, if you look at better effects, spinal manipulation plus manual therapy and education wins. It just does. Um, now, you can find studies say manipulation is better than everything or manipulation doesn't work at all. However, when you start to combine things, spinal manipulation, education, manual therapy, it wins. And even more so when you can take manipulation plus manual therapy plus exercise and rehab, it just is that multimodal approach that not only your patients are looking for, but it's something that we can deliver and it's something the World Health Organization uh, supports. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to do all those things. If you don't do all those things, that's fine. If you're the best spinal manipulator in the world and that's all you want to do, great. There's nothing wrong with that. However, for those patients who maybe are not getting to where they want to be, find a chiro in your area that does, is very good at education, very good at rehab. Let them continue the, uh, maybe a continuation for that care. So you don't have to change everything you're doing. It's just recognizing there could be other things uh, that you can incorporate in your practice. Now, most chiropractors like to keep patients in their box. If you want to include education, exercise, and soft tissue, obviously uh, you have a great resource at your hands for that with ChiroUp. Yeah, this was a big deal, this study, that uh, this kind of follows other clinical practice guidelines like the American College of Physicians that published in Annals of Internal Medicine and multiple other guidelines in the past five years that have said the same thing. When it comes to acute or chronic lower back pain, let's look away from chemicals and let's look toward mechanical treatments, things like spinal manipulation and exercise. And we know when we combine them, things get even better. One of our challenges is that we need to deliver this information to the public. People who are making decisions, whether it be their decision about where they go for their back pain or making decisions about laws or healthcare policies, 
Fortunately, we've got your back on this one. CaroUp has put together a natural solutions toolkit. If you go to CaroUp.com, click on the resources tab, anyone can access our natural solutions toolkit. There's a patient video, there's a blog, uh, there's an infographic, and these are all tools that we can use to spread the word to our patients and social media followers. You know, another thing to think about is, especially at the beginning of the year, you know, what are you gonna do to boost those patient numbers up? I know we see between 50 and 60 patients sent by medical doctors per month, and that's not based off the superior skill, <laughs> definitely not based off the superior skills of Tim. Um, you know, he kind of just wanders around the office every once in a while. Um, it's a big office. <laughs> um, it's explaining one simple thing. It's walking into a medical office, having lunch with them, and explaining what we do and why we do it. And that sounds fairly simple. However, if you dive into the condition reference section, it really describes what we do and why we do it. We do these tests, we do these treatments, and here's the research behind it. So really understanding the research uh, will help you communicate better with the people around you, whether it's the, the community as far as you know Facebook or Instagram or your patients, or whether it's a medical profession, having those resources behind uh, what you do and why you do it will go a long way in promoting your message. Yeah, and the second half of that one simple thing in communication is sending them a release report that we all send out initial reports, but our PCPs only see our failures. We can change that. Make sure you're using the release reports to say, hey, your patient came in. I treated them 10 times. I'm releasing them from care at this point in time. They did very well. So don't uh, don't drop the ball on that one. That's, that's one of the two biggest tools that, that we can use to get more PCP referrals. Which takes us on into our second study of the blog, and this one's a serious matter. Uh, this one is the association between SMT and strokes. Fortunately, there have been a whole lot of studies that have refuted that. And this, this year, Dr. Whedon uh, is responsible for a couple of them. He's been a huge asset to our profession, moving us forward. We're all on that same team. And he had a great study that he published in the European Spine Journal. Actually, I, got, I have the quote right here. Uh, the association between cervical spinal manipulation and cervical artery dissection is not causal in nature. It's more likely that in the period leading up to their diagnosis of a cervical artery dissection, patients with neck pain and related symptoms seek out care from a cervical spine manipulation provider, a medical provider, or both, uh, rather than having a specific risk for cervical artery dissection imparted by the recipient of a cervical spinal manipulation. So these people have neck pain, they have headaches, they have vertigo, and they're seeking care from a provider to hopefully help with those symptoms. Yeah, and this concurs with four other studies that have happened uh, just in the last couple of years that in 2022, a BMC geriatric study looked at 53 million patients, and these were seniors, and found that the those who received cervical manipulation had no increased risk of cervical artery dissection. A 2022 JMMT study that said vertebral arteries are not stretched during HVLA. A 2023 a Journal of Chiropractic Medicine study that showed that cervical manipulation did not alter blood flow in the vertebral or internal carotid arteries, and even a scientific report study in 2023 of a million manipulations that found that severe SMT adverse events were reassuringly very rare. In fact, in that study, there were no strokes, no, no deaths. The adverse effects that were uh, present were primarily soreness. So to dive a little bit deeper into this one, we like to take that research, but then turn it into tools 
Now check out ChiroUp's safety of cervical manipulation infographics. So once again, if you go into ChiroUp on the resources tab, same place as the natural solutions, check out the safety of spinal manipulation. So this is something that you would probably use more reactively, that if some patient comes in and says, hey, I heard that spinal manipulation and stroke have a relationship, you can provide them with those resources. Uh, as opposed to proactively starting that discussion on social media. But we're trying to help you dispel the myths with solid data that, that can support our standpoint and prove that we truly are a safe and effective modality. Yeah, I think everybody can have their own opinions, but not everyone can have their own facts. And the facts are the facts. Um, I did a talk at uh, Parker last month, and I started the talk off on the primary treatment approach for stroke, um, is actually one of the things that chiropractors should be doing, which uh, people started to kind of look at me a, a little bit funny as far as what, as a chiropractor, are we supposed to be doing for people with strokes? Kind of like I'm looking at you now. <laughs> He's like, uh, tread, tread lightly. Um, but really, the primary treatment approach for stroke, as most of them, I think it's 85, 87% of all strokes are ischemic, hinges significantly on one factor. And that one factor, possibly the most important factor for the most common type of stroke is something that you can control in your office. What is it? Time. It's can you recognize the symptoms? You know, among the various factors influencing the success of treatment, the most important is something that chiropractors can actually help with. And that is getting that patient in the right care, getting the anticoagulant TPA. Um, Tim, what does that stand for? <laughs> <laughs> what, what is TP uh, tissue? I, I didn't know there was going to be a tissue quiz. plus uh, some Plas activator, plasminogen activator. Yeah, that was not, that was on board part three boards. Uh, it's been a while. I know it wasn't on my part three boards. <laughs> um, now, did you chisel things on a rock when you did boards? It, it or did. Was it yeah. Scantron. <laughs> yes. No, but really, the so one of the things I covered in my talk was is that I believe it was 2018 American Heart Association. The key time frame for optimum results of TPA was four and a half hours. So when you think about stroke, some people think about that as, oh, I, I don't cause that. It's not my problem. Yeah, it is. It absolutely is. 100% it is because people who have strokes have three common symptoms. Neck pain, headaches, vertigo. What patients are you seeing in your office? Right? You know, think about that. There are a couple simple things that you can do to help differentiate what kind of uh, dysfunction this person is having. Um, now, recognizing strokes is not easy. We, we do it. At, in fact, the, the, was it the Cassidy study says that we um, actually do a slightly better job at recognizing than, than medicine. Um, however, the, the results of that were insignificant. However, we do at least just as good of a job as anyone else. And it's still very difficult. There are a couple things that you can do in your practice to help with that. Uh, and that's what that infographic that Dr. Burlesman uh, brought up before. That's what that webinar is going through with Dr. Demetrius and Dr. Michaud. Learn these things. Don't dig your head in the sand. Pour fuel on it. Hey, this is something that I can help my patients with in a time of need. Now, that's never fun to talk about, but it, it is something that is vital to our practices. Let's, let's go over the third uh, blog, though. Uh, third blog is uh, the neck pain and radiculopathy blog. I, this is one that we actually did a podcast. I want to say it was November of last year. Uh, but this research article, and this was um, in the Clinical Journal of Pain by uh, Pleener, looked at 59 studies for cervical radiculopathy. 
And they found that acupuncture, prednisone, cervical manipulation, low-level laser um, have some evidence on what they, they can help with uh, as far as treatment modalities. However, the reason I bring this study up is that when you dive into a diagnosis like cervical radiculopathy, make sure you take a look at the blog, you go back to their podcast, you take a look at the condition reference and Cairo up because the treatment method, like what you do, whether it's acupuncture, prednisone, cervical manipulation, laser, it has to do with what's going on with the patient. Can you select the right treatment for the right patient? And it has more to do with, are they experiencing chemical versus mechanical pain? Are they experiencing acute versus chronic radiculopathy? And are there possibilities of cord involvement? So when we just see cervical uh, radiculopathy, we can't just say, oh, I do this for cervical radiculopathy. Really, we need to answer those questions first. See if the cords involved, if it's acute versus chronic, or if it's chemical versus mechanical, because our treatments will change. Interestingly enough, about a month ago, I had a gymnast in my office who's been a gymnast for 10, 12 years. Is this a dad joke? <laughs> uh, I've got a dad joke about a gymnast. Uh, once again, not appropriate for this talk. Um, so this uh, this talk goes into, uh, or this, this patient uh, started experience bilateral symptoms extending into both of his hands in the median nerve distribution. And uh, very new. And really, when you have bilateral radiculopathy, that's a central problem until proven otherwise. So he thought he had carpal tunnel. He's been working on it for a while. Nothing's really getting better. Uh, but he's been a gymnast for a while. No trauma, nothing abnormal. However, there is one interesting thing. About two months ago, he started working on his front flips. So I had him do a front flip in the office, which is, you know, normally when I do deliver a good treatment or it's been a good day, I do a front flip. So it's not a big deal for our practice. However, I just want to see how he did a front flip. And uh, so he did a front flip and it, it involved a crazy amount of neck flexion. He actually created a searing between C5 and 7 uh, after obviously doing the MRI. And when he did the front flip, he felt the symptoms. It was quick um, and then it went away. So the reason I bring that up is the one thing that we need to do with cervical radiculopathy is identify what's causing it and then match the treatment to the actual problem. If it's a chemical problem, treat the chemical solution. If it's a mechanical problem, use a mechanical solution like manipulation. Yeah, so that takes us into our fourth article. Um, and this fourth article kind of piggybacks on a concept that we've been diving into a little bit more in the past decade. And that's that just seeing a lumbar disc herniation doesn't mean that you're going to have surgery. You and I as chiropractors know that clearly. Fortunately, last or a couple of years ago, the Global Spine Journal found that 97% of lumbar disc herniation patients are managed with non-operative care. And there was a study last year that kind of reinforced how that happens. Uh, and this was a study by Zhao in the Clinical Spine Surgery Journal 2023, found that on average, 70% of lumbar disc herniations will resorb on their own. But the interesting thing about Zhao's study is he found that um, the different types of discs responded at different rates that a bulging disc resorbed 13% of the time, a protruded disc half the time, an extruded disc 70% of the time, and a sequestered fragment 94% of the time. Now remember Zong's study in Pain Physician, this was way back five years ago, said that discs resorb at 67 to 82%. He didn't classify as to what type of disc it was, and Zhao's study last year did. And one thing that tells us is that depending upon the severity of that disc, it's going to resorb at a different rate. Why is that? Well, um, 
That was a true study from 15 that said extruded and sequestered discs were um, also more likely to regress than smaller morphologies. And, and I see this and you see this in practice. It's those small disc bulges that create those chronic pains. I've got a patient right now, it's a 42-year-old female, very active crossfitter, uh, runner, and she has some just, I mean, we're talking uh, small disc problems, but this chronic pain is just not going away. And the current thought process is surface area. That when you have a bulging disc or protruded disc, they're so somewhat protected, uh, protected by the uh, tissues around and ligaments around it. However, once that disc extrudes or it goes into a sequestered format, it has more surface area for your body to recognize it and create an immune response associated with it. And that's why we see our patients there in their 20s and 30s having a, you know, uh, incidence of 20 uh, of, uh, of disc lesions that are asymptomatic. It's not big enough. It's not a big enough problem. If it was extruded, if it was sequestered, now your body recognizes it just like it would recognize a splinter in your skin and says, hey, we have a big problem. I've never seen this before. Let's call in some help and let's get this stuff out of there. Yeah, and the, the larger the surface area, the larger the disc lesion, the more inflammation is generated, which naturally means it's going to resorb that disc more quickly because it's that inflammatory reaction that's resorbing it. We know that on average, a disc herniation will resorb within 17 months on its own. Um, we also know that the larger that is, the quicker it goes. So while that produces more symptoms, probably produces more pain, it's also going to go away more quickly. The key to determining which patients are going to need surgery and which ones aren't are the neurologic findings. If somebody has sensory symptoms that are manageable without motor or reflex loss, we probably have some time. Once somebody starts to develop motor and reflex loss, if that's not progressing, or especially if that's moving in a south direction, that's the patient that probably needs a surgical consult. But if the patient has pure sensory symptoms and they can handle that discomfort, it's probably going to go away within, within a relatively short time frame. And we know that a lot of patients who have disc bulges, that's not the source of their pain. That, that we know that 20% of 20-year-olds have an asymptomatic disc bulge and almost 80% of 80-year-olds. We also know that's true of degeneration, that there's really no correlation with the degree of degeneration, the degree of pain. Same thing with spondylolisthesis, no, no correlation with the progression. And even stenosis, 20% of patients who have the definition of stenosis being a sub 10 millimeter canal have no symptoms. What we do know is that those physical findings are really symptoms themselves. Our goal is to address what's the underlying issue that started that in the first place, and that's joint, joint dysfunctions and muscle imbalances. And when we can address both of those, we're in the driver's seat. Yeah, and that's one of the, we just had this conversation uh, before we started talking about this podcast about different interventions, and we were talking about epidural steroid injections and how some people like them, some people don't, some patients get better, some patients don't, and it has nothing to do with epidural steroid injections. They work every time. They inject this drug in the body. The question is, what's wrong with the person? If it's a degenerative stenosis and you have mechanical compression of a nerve, is there any chemical that's going to fix that problem? No. However, if I have a 25-year-old with a disc herniation and I have a huge inflam I'm sorry, sequestration that's causing a huge inflammatory reaction around that nerve root, can the epidural help that? Yeah, possibly. So it doesn't depend on the actual method you use. It's what patient and what symptoms are you trying to attack? All right, last one, fifth blog, carpal tunnel syndrome, probably the number one peripheral neuropathy that you're going to see in your office, uh, just based on the research. And this is going to go over not necessarily the diagnosis, but how to treat it. And I think this is uh, an interesting paper. I wanted to bring this one up because of the actual findings. 
Now, the findings were this, that when you use neurodynamic modulation techniques, so nerve flossing, nerve um, uh, tensioning uh, exercises, it can help with symptoms. However, we all know that. Uh, that's beyond the scope of this. Here are two things that I did not know, is that it actually increases motor latency and improves nerve conduction velocity. So not only are we helping with symptoms, but it's also helping that nerve start to recover. And we know that with every part of the body, every tissue, that you need motion. Um, however, I've never seen that in a paper. Just doing those techniques can help that nerve start to recover, uh, not just decrease swelling. So I thought that was interesting. Um, I use uh, nerve flossing on a regular basis. I know we use uh, nerve tensioners and nerve flossers for, for every uh, peripheral neuropathy or even radiculopathy when it comes to it because those nerves, uh, essentially, they, they get stuck and they get inflamed and we need to get and help them move two things you didn't know i have a whole list well, unfortunately we don't have time for that but what we do have a moment left to do is to talk about the median nerve tensioner so if you think about a nerve tension versus a nerve flossing a straight leg raises a nerve tension you're going to take the leg you're going to tension both ends of it versus a nerve floss is going to tension one end while relaxing the other. Think of taking a shoestring that's been kind of lightly glued in a straw and pulling one end then the other to floss it back and forth. That's what a nerve tensioner or a nerve, floss or a nerve flosser is gonna do for the carpal tunnel. So the carpal tunnel nerve flosser, we can, we can floss the entire uh, carpal tunnel, I'm sorry, the entire median nerve all the way through the carpal tunnel by just looking at your palm a couple of inches from your face and then dropping your palm down to waist level, extending your wrist like you're doing a phalanx, taking your arm behind you at the same time, dropping your head to the side and spreading your fingers, and then bring your hand back up towards your head. Now that's a tough uh, picture to grasp if you've not done it. Fortunately, we have a blog and it's called Upper Extremity Nerve Flossing. It's one of the more popular blogs. It's been viewed by a, a number of people, and it really does a good job of outlining all of the nerve tension tests and the nerve flossing maneuvers in the upper extremity. If you haven't checked that out, make sure that you do. Well, it's been an, let's call it, enlightening journey through the chiropractic research of 2023, really focused on manipulation. Um, not that there's not more we uh, you know do as chiropractors. We we treat everything you know from the toes to the, the head as far as uh, the nerves, the the bones, uh, the muscles, ligaments, uh, tendons. However, as far as manipulation, these were the top five that I saw. And you know, thanks Tim for creating the blog. Um, and then of course, you know, thanks to Cairo for taking this information and and turning into the wealth of knowledge both for for you and also your patients. Yeah, and that's that's the top ten of the year, and that's ob obviously subjective. I'm sure our listeners have some of their favorites as well. You can check out the entire blog if you go to the blog library. But what I would encourage you, the subscribers to do is make sure you're looking to the research feed that on your homepage, the research feed will give you two or three or four articles each day that are relevant to our profession. Um, and those, uh, those studies, just a quick synopsis. And just like these, we try not to just deliver the research because research that doesn't get put into action really isn't as useful as something that, that we can turn into a game changer. So we try to provide the resources, whether that be an infographic to explain something, a toolkit, videotaping a test or a treatment. Most of the things you find in the research feed on the Cairo Up homepage will actually have an asset associated with them as well. So uh, make sure you check that out. It really can be a game changer. Uh, so in closing, you know, what are you excited about in 2024? I, uh, Tim, you already... <laughs> You know, kind of let the uh, the beans out about what we're excited about. I mean, an EMR um, designed by chiropractors for the profession is what I'm excited about. 
I think most of us think about costs. We think about reporting, scheduling, our credit card processing, our, our billing integrations, you know, when you select an EMR, as you should. However, in all honesty, there's been a trend uh, of taking chiropractic money and data outside of the profession. And I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Um, and I think that I think there's a, a time and a place that as a profession that we have to create our own evidence. We have to look at our own cost effectiveness, our patient satisfaction, our billing patterns. And I think with doing this, if we can work together, we're going to see the profession's long-term success. So thank you for listening to the episode. You know, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, I, enjure, I encourage you to hit the follow button. Uh, just never miss an episode. They all kind of build on each other. Uh, by following, be the first to know when we release new content, and you'll have access to our entire library of episodes. Uh, I hope you'll listen next month. Hey, thanks for listening. To access more information, visit ChiroUp.com. You can sign up for a 14-day trial. Use referral code PODCAST15 for a special discount after your trial. Offer valid on new subscriptions only.